morning, everybody. Good morning. Very good. All right. Well, I really believe that I've got a word for us this morning. And actually, it's come out of something that Jesus has walked me through this week. And so it's kind of a bit fresh. And hopefully, it's going to help you that are here in the room. And we just want to honor you. Thank you for being flexible and rolling with the COVID punches that seem to keep coming and doing things. And if you can all just smile at me with your eyes. There we go. Lovely. Jason is right. We do have lots of beautiful eyes in this church. It's amazing. Have you ever had this thought pattern? If I just do this, then that will be better. If I just get this sorted, if I just conquer this, if I just am able to master this, then, and then you kind of fill in your own dream scenario, then it will all be solved. I had this thought when I was maybe about 14 about um, a pair of shoes um, called kickers shoes, and they're, they're behind me. I thought that they were like out of fashion, but you can buy these shoes now. So enduring is their fashion statement that they are. And uh, when I was 14, these were the shoes to have in school. Every cool kid had them. They were like really important. They had like a little red label on the side and then a green label, which just made them extra specially cool. They had heels as well, which I wasn't really allowed to wear heels. And um, I really, really wanted these shoes. And I felt like if I have, if I just have these shoes, and I remember saying to my mom, mom, if I just have these shoes, my life is going to be so much better. Like people will just want to be my friend. My year group's going to be like, who is that person? I just need to be friends with them. My teachers, when I walk into class, are going to be like, you look more intelligent. I'm going to give you higher grades because these shoes are just so good. Like every teenage problem that I thought that I had was just going to be solved with my shoes, the kicker shoes. And so I, I started a, a serious campaign to my mum about why I needed these shoes. This was not just like a, I want them, mum, it's like I need them. You know, all teenagers understand this, that, you know, those shoes that you just need them. It's not a want. I just don't want to like them. I have to have them. And I began a sustained campaign of why I have to have these shoes in my life. And um, they were horrifically expensive. And my poor mum was a very kind mum. And so when um, my feet had outgrown my regular, ordinary, nothing special about them shoes, she took me to go and get fitted for my kicker's shoes. I remember going into the shoe shop and the lady measuring my foot. And I was like, I don't care if they pinch and I can't walk in them. I'm getting these shoes on my feet like Cinderella style. I'm like, I'm walking out with these shoes. And we got these pair of shoes that fit amazingly. And I clearly remember lacing them up on the morning that I was going to walk into school with them for the first time. And I walked to the bus stop just feeling like a million dollars, just feeling like this is like the peak of my life. I've got a pair of kicker shoes on my feet. And I walked into the breakfast club and just expected everybody to kind of like stop and be like, who is this new person with their shoes on? Oh my goodness, I must be their friend. And I expected my teachers to you know, when I walked into class, go, you look more intelligent, Julie. You just look so much better. And your writing is just improved. And it's the shoes. And it's amazing. And I expected in assembly them to just make an announcement. Julie's got new kicker shoes, everybody. And uh, she's now the person to be friends with. And of course, none of that happened. I put my shoes on. I got my big puffer jacket on because it was like the late 90s and my Nike airbag slung over one shoulder even though my mum wanted me to put it on two shoulders but that was not very cool at the time so I had to have it on one shoulder 
And, and I walked in, and I remember my, my best friends, Rachel and Lisa, were like, oh, nice shoes. And then just carried on in the conversation. I was like, it's the shoes. Come on, let's just make more of a deal about these shoes. And I walked into my class, and of course, nobody noticed, and it wasn't announced in assembly. And my grades stayed the same. And by the end of the day, I'd ended up kind of scuffing them in the break time, and because it's the UK, it was wet, and they were all soggy by the end of the day. And I remember lacing them up the next day and walking into school with these shoes that I was so convinced, I genuinely was convinced they were going to make my life so different. And I walked into the same old, same old. I walked into just ordinary school, ordinary life, ordinary friends, even though they're really good friends, ordinary grades, just everything the same as it was. And I wonder whether sometimes in January we can feel a little bit like that. We can feel like, oh, it's the start of the new year and, you know, towards the end of December, we're all like, let's just, let's just get 2020 gone. Let's just, like, kick it to the curb because 2021 is going to come and it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And, you know, we have all these hopes and these dreams and these plans and we're thinking, yes, this is going to be a different year and it's going to be amazing. And then some point, during the year, usually kind of mid-January, February time, it kind of dawns on us that it's the same old, same old. America is still being America. When you switch on the news, you're like, oh, uh, it's still doing its thing. Goodness knows what it's doing. We don't know if they're okay, but the, America is still being America. COVID decided to turn up again and put us all into a snap lockdown and having to have limited numbers and all those kinds of things. There might still be tension in our marriage. The budget might still be stretched. You might still be tearing your hair out with your parenting or you might still be trying to do all these different things and, and, and you wanted it to be different and yet we find ourselves in the same old, same old. It's a new year. It's a new day. It's all exciting, but some things just carry on, don't they? Some things just walk into the new year with us. Some things just end up still being where we are. And how we respond when the same old, same old pops up. How we respond when a situation comes back again and again and again. How we respond when something that we thought we had dealt with and done with comes back around again is important. Because that kind of reveals a bit of our attitude towards God and his ways. And it always reveals what we need to work on. And I had that happen to me this week where a situation that I thought was going to be moving forward in my eyes just seemed to kind of stay the same or even move backwards a little bit. And it revealed some attitudes of my heart that I was like, oh, I, thought I'd, I thought I'd gotten this. And yet here I am in the same old, same old. And God really spoke to me about, Julie, how you respond? How are you responding when the situation doesn't change, when things pop back up again, how are you going to respond? And it's my choice. I have a choice how I respond. Jesus is going to make me respond some way. He isn't going to make me do something. It's my decision how I choose to respond. The situations often in life, we can't choose them. They come at us. But how we choose to respond, how we choose to think, how we choose to outwork our faith, that is in our control. And so this morning, that's what I want to talk into. The, your year, and when the same old, same old pops up again for you, how will we respond? And we're going to look at three accounts this morning of people who responded slightly differently. And then hopefully that will help you choose which one you want to respond to. So let's pray this morning as we get into God's Word. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you that it is here to bring life and life abundantly. Thank you, Father, that you don't want us to remain the same, but you are always calling us to be more like your son, Jesus. So as we read these passages today, as we submit our life to your word, we pray, God, that faith would rise, that hope would be released into the room, God, that a determination to be more like you would be planted in our hearts, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you direct these words to every person the way that you need them to, for every person here in the room and for every person watching online and in their life groups today. We pray, God, that you have your way and we get everything out of this that you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, our first account that we're going to read from today is in 2 Kings 5. I'm reading through the Bible very quickly at the moment, and so I've kind of powered almost through the Old Testament. I'm kind of, where am I? I'm in the middle of Isaiah at the minute. So I kind of heard this story very quickly this week, and it reminded me, again, I love this story, and it's a really interesting one. And it's the account of Naaman, and it's in 2 Kings chapter 5, and we're going to read it together and just pull out some thoughts about Somebody who found themselves in an interesting situation and how they responded out of that. So it'll be up on the screen for you as well, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Chapter 5. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So the main character in our story, Naaman, is not just an anybody. He's, he's a man of stature. He gets to tell people what to do. When he says jump, people ask how high. He's used to being in control. He's very favored. He's a man of war. And so I want you to remember this because this is going to help us when we come later in the chapter about something that happens to him. But he's used to things going his way. He's not used to somebody um, dissing him or not showing him honor whenever he's there. He is an important guy. Verse 2, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And I love the attitude of this girl because she's not where she would want to be. She's been captured. She's been enslaved. And yet in that situation that she finds herself in, she isn't um, self-pitying. She, she, she knows what the answer is to this guy's distress, this leprosy, this skin condition that he has. And she could so easily have kept that to herself. If she'd have had a spiteful heart, she would have been like, well, I know, I know how you can get healed, but I'm just not going to tell you. I'm just going to keep that to myself because you've like ripped me away from my family. I'm not even where I should be. I'm a slave in your house. But she sees what he needs and she's generous with it. And I find that really challenging because I think, well, how often in my world am I in contact with people who need what I have? They need what I have access to. They need the peace that Jesus brings. They need the healing that Jesus paid for on the cross. They need words of wisdom that the Holy Spirit wants to speak. And yet, maybe not through spite, but just through my own negligence, I'm not being forthcoming with saying to them, I have what you need. I know what it is that you need, and I know how you can get it. And I wonder if that's a challenge to us this year, just to keep our eyes and our ears open for the people in our world that need what we have access to, and yet, you know, the challenge comes for us to be able to, just to give it to them and say, hey, I have what you need. Come to church with me. Come to Life Group. Let me talk to you about my Savior. 
Verse 4. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel said. By all means go, the king of Ammon replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, that's a lot, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman's obviously very valuable to the king. And then the king of Aram and the king of Israel at this point, they've had, um, they've had a bit of beef before. They've, they've had some fights. They've had some skirmishes. Um, but there's a, a loose peace treaty at this point. So even though they've been fighting each other, they, there's now this peace treaty, which is why he's sending a lot of gifts with Naaman because it's, it's like a bit like a peace offering because they're still having a few fights on the, on the border, borders of their country. And so he sends Naaman off with this letter and all these gifts, which just shows how much the king loves and values Naaman, that he's willing to really put himself in a position of humility to ask for something from a foreign king and that's how much he loves Naaman. That's how much he values him. And it just shows how desperate Naaman is for healing as well. So then we get to verse 7 with the king of Israel. And as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, which was saying, I'm sending my servant Naaman, please heal him. He tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel doesn't respond super well in this moment because he's, he's kind of, there's a little bit lost in translation where obviously the, the slave girl said there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you. But the king has said, the, the, asked the king to heal you. The king of Israel is like, I can't heal anybody. And he just loses it. He's like, oh my goodness, it's going to go really wrong with this guy who the king obviously really loves. And I'm supposed to heal him and I can't heal him. And my God, and he, he rips his clothes, which is like just a really bad thing. It's like, oh my goodness, you just rip your clothes apparently. Thank goodness we don't do that anymore. And, uh, and so he's, but he's putting himself, he's forgetting that the fact that there's Elisha in the country. And so, of course, he's not being asked to heal anybody, but he overreacts. So, verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Great question. Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house, which is good etiquette. It's a little bit like a COVID scenario. So he's got this skin leprosy. We don't, leprosy is like a, a hold all for, it could be leprosy. It could also be any kind of skin complaint that's contagious. And so it's good hygiene for Naaman not to just kind of barge into Elisha's house and go, can you sort me out, please? So he's expecting in this moment Elisha to come out. But plot twist, Elisha does not come out, and it, it gets interesting from here on. So Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. It's a really simple instruction. It's not a request. It's not name and please will you. It's an instruction. Go and wash yourself in the Jordan seven times, and what is bothering you will be sorted. And in this moment, when Naaman is presented with something that is very ordinary, very simple, not difficult, just 
a simple instruction. Do this and your problem will be solved. It reveals some stuff that is going on in Naaman's heart. It reveals what is happening because he doesn't respond very well in the next part. And we're going to read what he says. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. That was Naaman's unspoken expectation. Are not the Abana and the Farfar and the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman has a grade A strop because he's waiting there. Remember, he's used to people coming out to him, lots of deference. You know, how high would you like me to jump? What do you need? I'll get it for you. He's used to kind of being waited on and being respected and all that kind of stuff. And then when Elisha doesn't even come out to see him, he's like, what is this? What? Who, who is this guy? And, and why is it this river? And why, what are you even asking me to do? Even though he has the problem and he's been given the solution to do. And I want to pull out just very quickly three things that Naaman missed in this moment. He was offended by the manner. It says this, I thought he would surely come out to me. Naaman's expecting Elisha to come out to him, and he's offended that Elisha won't even do that. He's used to people deferring to him and doing whatever he wants them to do. And I think maybe what's happening in this moment is that Elisha is trying to get Naaman to see the healing is not coming through me. The healing is not coming through me coming out to see you. The healing and the miracle is coming from God, and that's where you need to see your source from. And if Naaman stays offended by the manner in which the healing is going to come, he's going to miss it in this moment. The second thing I think he's offended by is the method. He says that he thought that he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me. So Naaman's got a really clear picture of how he thinks this healing should go. He's thinking he's going to come out, wave his hand over the spot, which there must have been some frame of reference. Maybe that's how healers worked in, in his country where he came from. But he has this unspoken expectation of this is how it's supposed to happen. This is how my healing is supposed to come. This is how my break, this is the method through which my breakthrough is going to come. And if it's not going to be like that, then, then I'm just not interested in that. And he compares the rivers. I think really interesting because the, the River Jordan was well known and in, 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 in the text it said that it was a clay river, a brown, muddy, dirty river. And so it's not like a pretty river. It's, it's a muddy river. But the other two rivers that he mentions, let me get this right, were called rivers of gold. That's what they were called in their culture because they were so clean and clear and beautiful and so Naaman's like, well, what's so special about this river? It's not even a nice river. It's a muddy river. There could be crocodiles in it. I don't know because it's muddy and I can't see them. And it's not even like the good rivers that I have in my country. And so he's offended by the method. And if he stays offended by the method, he's going to miss it. He's offended, lastly, by the movement. He was told, when he was told, go down to the Jordan River and wash yourself seven times. That's a journey of about 25 miles, and it's a, a descent of about 1,000 feet in elevation. 
And that's a bit of an inconvenience to him because remember, he's got all of this gold. He's got all these clothes. He wouldn't have just been him and a mate. There would have been a lot of people with him, a big entourage. And so now they've all got to go together. And it's an inconvenience. Elisha said, put some movement. Go to the river. Go for 25 miles with all your horses or whatever they've got to carry everything. And he has to go and do something. And even though Naaman's come all this way to see Elisha, he's going to get offended over the last 25 miles. He's going to get offended over just the last little bit. And if he gets stuck on this, he's going to miss it. And when I look at Naaman's reaction here, I think I see myself, and maybe you see yourself too, that when we find ourselves in the same old, same old scenario, when Jesus asks us to do something that seems pretty mundane to us, when the problem doesn't always have a super quick and easy fix, but requires some effort on our part, when the path to breakthrough that Jesus is telling us to take doesn't make sense, in those moments, it requires us to trust and obey, like Jason said this morning. When you find yourself in a situation where the only answer is to trust and obey. I think that's prime breeding ground for being offended. And I think we can get offended by the manner and the method and the movement that Jesus might be asking, or not even asking, telling us to have. And so I want to maybe ask this morning, is what God is telling us to do, is that a stumbling block to us because it isn't coming in the packaging that we think it should? Because... It's not the method that we think it should be. It's not the movement that we think it should be. It's not the manner that we think it should be. And is that becoming a stumbling block sometimes because of our own stubbornness? Or are we going to walk in humility, knowing that if God's told us to do something, then he actually knows what he's doing. And the smart thing for us to do is just to walk 25 miles, just to make the 1,000-foot descent and go and wash in what looks like a muddy river. It could look like when we're in a same old, same old, and, and we have the, um, the opportunity to despise, really, what it is that God's asking us to do. It could look like this. It could look like when you go to your life group leader and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. What do you think? And then they give you some wise counsel, and then you're like, well, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't, well, that's very nice, but I don't like that solution. And I've done that so many times where I've taken a problem to a leader and been like, hey, there's this problem in my life, and what do you think I should do about it? Or how do you think I should approach it? And they've told me something. I've been like, oh, well, yeah, no, I don't like that bit. Like, is, is there another option? Like, that's very nice what you said. Thank you for all your wisdom and understanding. But, you know, option B, please. Thank you very much. And that's the same old, same old. We get offended by the manner or the method or the movement. It could look like having to do hard the hard work of changing habits that change the rest of your life. Changing a habit is really hard work, really hard work. And it's, it is work to do. And, and we can get offended by that. We can be like, well, this is just too hard. It's just too hard. The movement of, of actually changing something that is a habit in our life is just sometimes too hard. And we get offended by the movement that it is. And we think, well, I, no, I'm just going to do something else. It could look like working on our own character so that the calling that's on our life doesn't break us or break other people that are going to be in our life. That's hard work. 
working on your character, it sounds really romantic and wonderful and like, you know, there's going to be an angel in the background going, you're working on your character. You're so wonderful. But really, it's somebody saying, this in your life sucks. You need to sort it out. Or you're indisciplined in this area. Or you can turn up on time for work, so why not turning up on time here? Like, it, it's those things in our life that aren't comfortable, that are the same old, same old things that we end up in. But we can get so offended by the manner and the method and the movement that it takes. Things that are easy to despise can look like going to counseling. When we get stuck on something or somebody points something out that is maybe something to do with our past or how we've been brought up or just an unconscious way that we come to things, and we think, well, I can't change this. It's too hard to change this. But you can change it. That's a lie. You can absolutely change it. And sometimes we change that through going to counseling. And we have a, a, a professional who's able to point stuff out to us. And it's hard work and it's difficult. And we know because I've done it and me and Neil have done it together. And it's difficult work going to counseling. But sometimes we need that. And there's nothing to be ashamed about, about seeking outside professional help from godly people, Christian counselors who are able to help us work through our own stuff and not bring stuff into the future. But that's easy to despise. It's easy to despise because we get offended by the method, the manner, and the movement. And all of those examples, we could sum them up by saying those are all examples of somebody saying, go and wash in a muddy river seven times. So often, I think, when it comes to our same old, same old scenarios and we want something to change, we want what Naaman wants. We want the man of God to come and wave their hand over it, over the spot, and to be cured. We have a very specific way of thinking, this, Jesus, is how you're going to sort the solution. This is how you're going to sort the problem. I'm not the only one that's done that before, am I? Come on, put your hand up. Don't make me feel so long. Thank you, Auntie. Very good. So often, there's a problem in my life, and I'm like, Jesus, you and I both know this is a problem. Here's how I think you should solve that. And I'm sure Jesus chuckles a lot because I say this to him a lot. He's like, Julie, I don't want to do it that way. I want you to go and wash in the Jordan in a muddy river seven times. And I could be like, well, Jesus, you, you, you can just wave your hand over it. And you can just sort it. And he's like, yep, 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 I totally can. But I also want you just to go down 25 miles and wash in a muddy river. And if we get hung up in that moment about this is how it should happen, this is how my breakthrough has to come, this is how my healing has to be, this is how that relationship has to get healed, and we get hung up on the method or the manner or the movement, then we're going to miss it. And what we've only been asked to do in those moments is to trust and obey. And it's not glamorous because it's boring and repetitive and takes hard work and it's in a muddy river. But we've been asked and told to go and wash seven times. Now in that moment, thank goodness, so remember Naaman went off in a rage, turned off. He was obviously had a bit of a hot temper. But thank goodness that Naaman had people around him who loved him enough to speak truth to power in that moment, when there was great risk to them to do that. And this is what they said to him. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, which is a term of endearment, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So they, they speak the truth to him to kind of snap him out of, come on, 
Like, what you're being asked to do is not that difficult. You're being asked to go 25 miles and dip yourself seven times in a river. It's not that big a deal. And to Naaman's credit, he gets it. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. We get this lovely full circle moment with Naaman. It says that him and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. And we see Elisha saying, No, no, I don't want any gift. And then Naaman basically says, Well, I'm not going to worship anybody else now. I'm just going to worship your God because this mundane thing that I didn't think had any power in it, this thing that I just thought shouldn't be the way that it was, that's it's obviously your God that's done that. And he has this moment of recognition and repentance. I want to take you now to a second story in Luke and John. And I want you to contrast and have a look and see, as I'm reading the story, if you can see how the disciples respond in the same old, same old scenario. They find themselves in a scenario that is very mundane, very ordinary. And Jesus comes to them, and I want you to watch how they respond very differently than Naaman did. I'm going to read together in Luke 5. So Jesus is teaching by the lake of Gennesaret, and people are crowding around him, and he can't speak to them all. So he goes out onto the water, which is really smart because it amplifies his voice. And then he got into one of the boats that belonged to Simon Peter, and then he sat down and he's teaching people from the boat. And then verse 4 says, When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For they were all astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And then Jesus tells them, You're now going to be working for me, lads. We're going to be fishers of men. I like to see... In this moment, a same old, same old scenario. They'd done this day in, day out since being young lads. They had fished on this lake. They knew what they were doing. And Jesus comes along, who is not a fisherman. He's probably a construction worker. So often we think it's a carpenter because we know that Joseph was a carpenter. But that work can mean architect or construction worker. He was a manual laborer. He was Jesus a tradie of sorts. And so probably didn't have a ute though. So he was coming and then telling fishermen how to fish, saying, all right, you've not caught anything, but put your nets onto the other side. There is no earthly reason that the fishermen should be listening to a construction worker about how to fish. Not one. He's got no experience of doing it. He doesn't have the runs on the board. He doesn't have the authority to speak into it in that moment. And I love Peter's response in this. We've been fishing all night. He states the facts. And haven't caught anything, but because you say so. There is no reason, no earthly reason for Peter to respond in that way. And yet, he's in a same old, same old scenario, something that he's used to, something that's failed for him. And he responds not by being offended by the manner in which Jesus is talking to him, 
because he's got no right to talk as a construction worker. He's not offended by the method in which Jesus is telling them to do, put your nets on the other side. They're not offended by the movement that Jesus is telling them to do. You know, do this and you're going to get a load of fish. None of that comes into them. And he just says, because you say so, and he does it. And the miraculous catch of fish comes. And I see that and I'm like, that's how I want to be. That's how I want to respond. I want to respond when Jesus tells me to do something, not by asking for logic, not by asking for persuasive arguments, not by asking for hours of cajoling and convincing, but just because Jesus tells me to do something, I'm just, I want to have that muscle memory of I'm just going to trust and obey. I'm just going to do what it is that you're telling me to do. Because it's not a request. Jesus doesn't say, if you'd like to, lads, if you think it would be okay, if it's all right with you, if it's not going to offend you. He just says, put, put your nets on the other side. It's an instruction. And they don't get offended by it, as they so easily could have done. And they put their nets on the other side, and they get the catch. I wonder if the band could join me this morning. Later on in John, we get another same old, same old. And it, and it goes on one step further. And I'm going to read it to you. This is right at the end of the Gospels. They've, this, the first story in Luke 5 was right at the start. So this is where they're just meeting Jesus. They don't have history together, which is even more amazing with how they respond because they don't have a history with this Jesus to even have the ability to trust him, but they just do it. At the end of their journey together, after Jesus has been crucified and then resurrected, we have this account in John 21. Bear in mind, they've had three years together now. They've had three years of making mistakes. They've had three years of conversations and history and laughing and, and just getting to know each other and doing stuff together and seeing breakthrough and seeing miracles and being part of miracles and having miracles happen in their hand when they're handing out the five loaves and the two fishes. And they've had the highest of highs of seeing you know, Jesus transfigured on the mountain and then the lowest of lows of them denying him and not being able to stay awake and even watch and pray with him and scattering away and everything that they thought was going to be all right and it wasn't. And then Jesus raising from the dead and then being like, oh, it's all okay. And they've had all of this history together. And yet still something interesting happens in John 21. It says afterwards, this is after his race and after, after he's um, came and revealed himself to his disciples. Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. And it's interesting to me that, that they've had, Jesus specifically told them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And yet, Jesus has died, he's raised again, and that somehow they're still stuck in some sort of same old, same old scenario where their default is, I'm just going to go back to what I know. I'm going to go back to what I'm good at. I'm going to go back where I can get an easy win, a quick win. And this happens. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I, and I don't know this, it's not theologically sound, but I wonder if Jesus was like, fish, just if you... If they put their nets in, you just, just swim away from them. Because I wonder if he wanted them 
to feel that sense of actually this is not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be on a boat and a sea fishing for fish. I'm supposed to be out and about talking about Jesus, talking about the resurrection, talking about what he's done for us and how amazing he is and how he's the fulfillment. And so they catch nothing. They're in the same old, same old, and they're literally having a repeat experience of Luke 5. Verse 4 tells us that early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And then he says to them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, and I just want to pause there, because in this moment, there's no, we've been fishing all night and we've caught nothing, but because you say so. There's not even in this moment a because you say so moment. Jesus just simply says, throw your net on the other side. And they did. No one's having a conversation. No one's recognizing at this moment as Jesus. They just do it. They just throw it on the other side. And when they do that, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with a fish on it and some bread. And it's this amazing moment where they find themselves in the same old, same old. Luke 5, Jesus comes to them. They haven't caught any fish. He tells them, put your nets on the other side because you say so a moment. Something very ordinary. And then when we get to the end of the Gospels and we see them after having spent three years with Jesus, there isn't even a because you say so a moment. There's a muscle memory involved here, I think. That's what I think is going on here. Because they are now no longer offended with the method. They're not offended by the movement. and They're not offended by the manner. They just do it. They just obey. They just put their nets on the other side. There's not even a because you say so. They hear somebody telling them to do something and they simply do it. That obedience muscle memory kicks in to simply trust and obey. They have every right to be offended again by the manner, the method, and the movement and they're not every part of their muscle memory leads them to a path of quick obedience. And I wonder this year, for me and for you, when we come to our same old, same old scenarios, when we come to the things that we thought we dealt with and yet they pop back up, when we come to the things that we thought we'd broken through and yet they come back round again, when we come to something, some sin that has mastery over us and we're like, oh, I thought... I, I thought I'd conquered this and yet here it is again. When we come to that problem in our marriage or with our children or in our finances or however it comes to us this year, when those same old, same old moments come to us and Jesus gives the instruction, do this, cast your nets on the other side, go and wash in the river seven times. When that comes, am I going to be offended? Am I going to be offended by the method the movement and the manner in which Jesus is telling me to do it? Or am I going to have a muscle memory that says, I'm going to trust and obey. I'm going to be quick 
in my obedience. To do that takes a posture of humility. It takes a posture of, I'm going to go 25 miles. It's an inconvenience, but I'm going to go and wash myself in a muddy river, even though there are perfectly other good rivers around. I'm going to take my nets and cast them on the other side. I may not understand, but I am going to obey. I may not understand, but I am going to obey. And I wonder if we, if that got into our souls this year, Jesus, I may not understand. I may not have a clue what you're doing. I may think that you should be waving your hand over the spot and it be sorting itself out. I may think that you should just be able to send the fish into the net. Does it make any sense that you're telling me to put it on the other side of the boat? Fish are fish. They're swimming in the same sea. But because you say so, but because I'm just going to trust you, I'm going to have that muscle memory that kicks in. When I was little, I grew up in the Methodist church with my mom and dad. We all became Christians within about a year of each other. And one of the things that I loved about my Methodist upbringing was that we sang these amazing hymns. And because I was little, they're just like ingrained in my brain now. As I was writing this message, one of the hymns that came to me that I so loved was this song that said this. It said, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I wonder this morning, maybe if you close your eyes, if you're in the room or if you're watching with your life group or you're at home, if you close your eyes and just have a moment with Jesus right now. And I want you to think about that same old, same old scenario that you might find yourself in. Something that has been bothering you, something that has been persistent, something that is wearing you down, something that is difficult, that you don't know how you're going to get over it that maybe you've got a plan in your head of how Jesus should sort it out, those same old, same old scenarios. And I wonder if you could make the decision in your heart and in your mind today, Jesus, whatever it is you want me to do, I am going to do it. I'm going to trust and obey. I'm going to work this year on having a muscle memory that just obeys you no matter what even if it doesn't make sense, even if I don't like the method, even if I don't like the manner, even if I don't like the movement, I'm going to have a muscle memory that says, yes, I'm going to do it because you say so. I'm going to cast my nets on the other side. I'm going to go and wash in a muddy river. I'm going to go and talk to that person. I'm going to go and seek out counseling. I'm going to go and speak to a pastor. I'm going to put in some keystone habits that are going to change the way that I live my life. I'm going to seek out friendship this year. I'm going to seek out community. I'm going to decide to be disciplined in my finances. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is talking to you about right now, today can be the first day where you build that muscle memory that I'm going to trust. 